From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today on The Public Morality, we'll begin with speaking with Mark Morrow, Executive Director of the Sentencing Project, about sentencing disparity in America. And after that, we turn our attention to last week's violence in Baton Rouge, Minneapolis, and Dallas. Joining us will be Reverends Michael Matthews and Terrence Hawkins. That's next on The Public Morality. Welcome to The Public Morality. For decades, you couldn't run for any elected office beyond dog catcher if you were not willing to prove that you were tough on crime. Though widely successful at winning elections, time has proven it to be an ineffectual policy that is as costly as it is inadequate. And nowhere is this more evident than in our sentencing laws. Driven more by a lock-the-door-and-throw-away-the-key mentality, it is one of the leading contributors to prison overcrowding. But if Winston Churchill is right, in that you can always count on Americans to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. Maybe we've reached the point where it's time to rethink the efficacy on tough on crime policies, including sensing guidelines, by taking a more common sense approach. Joining me to discuss this is Mark Maurer. Maurer is executive director of the Sensing Project based in Washington, D.C. Mark Maurer, welcome to the public morality. Thank you. It's good to be here. I, I watched a 2014 speech that you gave where you offered that if every American spent a day in prison talking with inmates and prison guards, uh, learning what actually goes on in prison culture, that we could actually change the existing narrative about crime and punishment. And what, what did you mean by that? Well, we tend to discuss these issues in generalities and with labels. And so when someone has committed a crime, we refer to that person as, oh, he's a burglar, oh, she's a robber, oh, uh, he's a killer, things like that. You know, we define them by the crime they've been convicted of. And yes, we should acknowledge the crime they've been convicted of and take that seriously, but it doesn't tell us everything we need to know by any means. Uh, people in prison, just like the rest of us, have complicated social histories, family histories. Uh, nobody just wakes up one morning and decides to uh, burglarize a home or steal a car. There's a set of circumstances that come around through that. And so by getting to understand how people engage in behavior that ended them up in prison, I think it gives us some sense of what we might do as a community to prevent that, uh, to reduce the scale of crime that we see in our neighborhoods. Now, uh, could you put into context the the exponential growth in the U.S. prison population in, in, say, the last 50 years? Sure. Well, uh, up until the early 1970s, uh, the number of people in our prison system had remained relatively stable uh, for a number of decades. There were roughly 300,000 people in our prisons and jails in 1970. Today, that figure is more than 2 million people behind bars. So we have more than six times the number of people locked up. Um, it far outpaces any increase in the prison population. 
in the overall population. And to put some perspective on it, the United States has now become the world leader in its rate of incarceration, the proportion of our population behind bars. If you compare us to uh, industrialized nations to which we're most similar, we lock up our citizens at five to ten times the rate of those other nations. And to me, there's something fundamentally disturbing about a society that's the wealthiest nation in the world that prides itself on its democratic traditions and yet also has become the world's leading jailer. There's something wrong with that picture, I think. And and, and to take that a step further, the, the nations that we are comparable to are like, what, China, Russia, Rwanda, something like that? Yeah, um, some of them, you know, uh, nations of great conflict like Rwanda, very high. Uh, Russia has had a very high rate of imprisonment, although they've taken steps to reduce it in recent years. Uh, China comes close to us in a number of people in prison, but given their population, their rate is considerably below ours. Uh, and it's important to know internationally. Um, it's not so simple to define uh, incarceration. Uh, you know, some nations have uh, large numbers of people we might think of as political prisoners, and they may not be always counted. Uh, some nations, uh, including our own, have terrible practices at the police level sometimes, and sometimes cases don't enter into the formal court system, yet uh, there's a great degree of social control being enacted anyway. So uh, looking at this internationally, uh, there's lots of qualifications. Nonetheless, the United States is at the top of the chart, and, uh, and that's not, nothing to be proud of. No, I, I think back uh, when um, Richard Nixon in 68, I know I'm dating myself, but mm-hmm. uh, when he ran on a law and order platform, was that when the trajectory began to change? Or were there some other factors that got us where we are today? Well, that was a striking moment, certainly. I, I think his imagery of law and order and the problem of crime in the streets, it was it was a mix of uh, political reaction. I think part of it was a reaction to the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement. Uh, but also crime rates were rising in the late 60s. Uh, some of that was due to the rise of the baby boom generation coming of age, you know, all things being equal, young men between the ages of 15 and 25 committed disproportionate amount of crime. Uh, we had increasing urbanization then, which is also associated with higher crime rates in most instances. Uh, but until then, crime had largely been a local issue. With local police and local political structures responding to it, and that was probably the first time on a national level uh, that we saw the issue of crime becoming so prominent. And of course, in the decades since then, uh, it's been even more so. Uh, You know, we uh, had the war on drugs of the 1980s, the uh, uh, Willie Horton campaign issue in 1988, uh, many other political leaders uh, raising this in a very fundamentally uh, direct way. Well, since you mentioned uh, in particular Willie Horton, uh, you know, do you see this phenomenon as the residue of what I would call political low-hanging fruit in that you can enact draconian policies and advocate for them uh, largely with our consequence? Right. I mean, for many years, um, you know, political leaders in both major parties, with about a handful of exceptions, um, were pretty much trying to outdo each other on how tough they could be on crime. And 
by being tough, what they meant was how many harsh sentencing policies could they enact and how much could they increase the prison population. And there's very little uh, analysis of whether these policies were actually having an impact on crime, but they sounded good on the campaign trail. And, you know, it became policy by anecdote and slogan. Uh, we took, you know, very serious cases like Willie Horton, but, you know, a serious case, that's one case in a country of 300 million people, uh, we shouldn't normally be developing major policy based on a single case. But in fact, we've done that over and over again. Um, we had policies starting in the 1990s, uh, three strikes and you're out. And, you know, if you start developing crime policy based on the rule of baseball, um, you know, bad <laughs> things are going to happen, I think. It's not a very strategic way, and it doesn't rely on, you know, research uh, that would tell us what might work or not work in promoting public safety. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Mark Maurer, Executive Director of the Sentencing Project in Washington, D.C. How do we change the narrative when you're talking about people for whom society sees largely void of humanity? I'm not saying everyone, but, but, but there's enough of perception that, that keeps that narrative in place. How do you change that? Well, it's been a slow process, but it is evolving. Um, I think one way the narrative has begun to change is in the whole perception of the war on drugs. Uh, the war on drugs, you know, really took off in a substantial way beginning in the mid-1980s. We saw a record rise in the number of people arrested for drug offenses, you know, huge numbers of people going to prison for drug offense. Um, but over time, I think the message that came across is that, uh, first, there's no American family that hasn't been touched by alcohol or drug abuse in some way or another. I think people can understand that. Uh, people understand the, uh, the science behind it, the consequences to families and communities, and the fact that, you know, those families with resources will always choose to try a treatment approach rather than a criminal justice approach. So I think that began to come across, and then as stories came out about the often sentences imposed on people convicted of a drug offense, but hardly the kingpins of the drug trade. Um, I think people's sense of justice and fairness uh, came to the fore as well. So I think it was a growing recognition that, yes, this is a problem we're having with substance abuse in many cases, um, but, you know, we need to really understand what's the relative mix of prevention, treatment, and criminal justice that we want to employ. At first, it was almost entirely a criminal justice response. Now we're starting to see a bit more balance in those approaches. On, on that note, Jim, one of the statistics that you cite on your website is that half of the people serving time in federal prison are for drug offenses. Mm -hmm. um, my question to you, sir, is who are those individuals? Because, I mean, we, we might fill in the blank with our own straw man. Is it, is it drug kingpins? Is it low-level dealers? Is it, is it people suffering from addiction? What's, mm -hmm. the break, what's the breakdown there? Yeah. Well, for a start, you know, we have to recognize that that's in federal prison. That's correct, about half of them. In, in state prisons, uh, the figures are somewhat lower. But in federal prison, um, there are very few people in there just for possessing drugs. Nobody's in federal prison for smoking a joint or something. So they're virtually all in there for selling drugs. 
Having said that, uh, we know that most of them are not the major players in the drug trade. They're much more likely to be the street corner sellers, the so-called mules and couriers, than they are people flying in drugs by the plane load from South America. Um, much of this has to do with the adoption of mandatory sentencing in the 1980s by Congress, and so it allows for much harsher penalties uh, than people convicted of a drug offense previously got. Uh, this contributed to a much more expanded role of federal law enforcement to bringing drug offenders uh, into the system. Uh, and if you point out to some of these officials that you've got lots of people serving long time in prison for only being in the lower or middle rungs of the drug trade, uh, the response we hear is, well, we get them to try to get them to flip to give us information about the higher-ups in the drug trade and start to take that chain down piece by piece. And yes, sometimes that's how it plays out, but frequently that's not what happens, and we know that because we have such substantial numbers of people uh, in the lower tracks of the drug trade uh, still caught up by this, uh, not getting a so-called break in the system. So, you know, if we think about what impact are we having on overall substance use, and selling, um, locking up a street corner seller doesn't get us very far. You know, once we arrest that person, put him in prison, he or she is probably replaced on that same street corner by the next day or two. So in terms of interrupting that flow, it's a very modest effect. And, and, and since you mentioned um, some of the harsher sentencing, I mean, certainly the crack epidemic uh, played a uh, a rather pernicious role in that, in that sentencing, especially in federal prison. Could, could, could you discuss the impact that the crack has on, on the current sentencing that we're now um, under? Yeah, well, crack cocaine you know, made its uh, appearance in the mid-1980s, uh, in first in urban areas in the Northeast and spreading to other parts of the country. And congressional leaders responded uh, in record time and with record punitiveness. Uh, the image of the crack offender, the user or the seller, uh, was that of a young black man, sometimes a young black woman. Whether or not that was entirely accurate, that was the image we saw on the cover of news magazines and TV specials and the like. And what happened in Congress is that they raced ahead in record time to adopt very severe punishments for crack cocaine. Uh, at the time, you could go to prison for a mandatory five years in prison if you possessed as little as five grams of crack cocaine. That's about the weight of two sugar packets. Uh, so there are no hearings held in Congress about uh, learning what we knew about this drug, uh, what options were there to deal with it through treatment approaches and the like. Uh, how was it the same or different than other forms of cracking, crack cocaine? Uh, instead, you know, according to one report, there were members of the Judiciary Committee meeting to discuss this. One of them said, I heard that crack is 50 times more dangerous than powder cocaine. Another one responded, well, let's double it then. Let's set it at 100 times the drug quantity. So crack cocaine was given much more serious penalties than powder cocaine. Um, what legislators could have known at the time, and we've seen, is that 80% of the people prosecuted for a crack cocaine offense have been African-American. 
Now, whether that was deliberate or intentional, we could debate, but, you know, those figures were available at the time, and yet Congress just forged ahead with these very harsh punishments. Well, that actually leads me to, to another point uh, related, though. Um, talk about the, the racial disparity in, 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 in prison sentencing. I know it's been well documented, but mm-hmm. give us a current breakdown. Yeah, well, uh, right now, you know, if we look at the trends, we have record numbers of people in prison um, and very high rates of disparity. African Americans are incarcerated about five times the rate of whites. If we look at how that breaks down demographically, the most recent reports from the Justice Department tell us that uh, for a black boy born today, uh, all things being equal, he stands about a one in three chance of doing time in prison at some point in his lifetime, one in three. For Latino boys, it's one in six, and for white boys, it's one in 17. And the numbers for women overall are lower, but we see racial ethnic disparities there as well. Uh, And, you know, if we look at that and just ask a very simple question, you know, if we had figures showing that one in three white boys could expect to go to prison in his lifetime, how would the nation respond? I think we would declare it a national emergency. We'd have the president on national TV talking about the crisis. We'd have policymakers and community groups engaged in, you know, reversing this horrific trend, knowing that incarceration has so many negative consequences. Uh, So, yes, there's been some movement on racial disparity, and yes, uh, some jurisdictions are beginning to improve those figures, but uh, there's certainly nothing like a national emergency that's been declared, and, you know, we're living with a moment when the life prospects for so many young African Americans, especially in low-income communities, uh, are increasingly uh, just very disturbing to see them develop. Uh, Last week, there was a New York Times article that featured, um, on the front page, featured an inmate by the name of uh, Larry Singleton, I mean, Lenny Singleton, excuse me. Um, he's in a Virginia prison, and in 95, he had a uh, crack cocaine addiction. He robbed 13 stores. I think one, one, according to the article, only one of those times did he have a weapon, which was a uh, six-inch um, kitchen knife. And um, he pleaded and got 100 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe he got two life sentences plus 100 years. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, given your work, is this situation an outlier or is this the type of sentencing, not maybe not two life sentences and, and, um, and 100 years plus, but is it, is it normative in that the punishment, whatever it may be, far and away exceeds the crime? Yeah. Well, unfortunately, uh, yes, it's, a, it's an extreme case, but it's hardly the only one. Uh, you know, in recent years, President Obama has increasingly used his clemency powers to grant uh, sentence commutations to about 348 people in federal prisons. About a third of the commutations he's granted have been for people convicted of a drug offense and sentenced to life without parole. Now, to be fair, it wasn't necessarily their first drug offense, nor was Mr. Singleton's his first. But, you know, the notion that we're sending away people for life without parole, even if there was no violence associated with the crime, uh, getting far harsher punishments and people often convicted of serious crimes are getting, let alone uh, decades more than you would in comparable nations. Um, Just, you know, one illustration of just how out of control our notions of punishment have become over time.
uh, talking with uh, Mark Maurer, executive director of the Sensing Project. Um, I need you to help me out with something here. You know, I, you know, I personally have found the manner that when we talk about, uh, say, the uh, cocaine sensing, the differences between powder and crack cocaine, and just when we talk about that on the surface, you know, then that evidence right there is proof positive of racism. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't the Congressional Black Caucus was a part of that congressional body that supported uh, these policies based on, you know, the crime that was happening in their communities and they were trying, they were responding in reaction. So then when the other side gets a hold of that, then they say, well, how can it be racist if the Congressional Black Caucus supported it? So in effect, it goes nowhere. Mm-hmm. It, help me out. Am I, am I, am I yeah, right? That's often the way the conversation goes. Um, and yes, many, most members of the current uh, Black Caucus in 1986 and again in 88 supported these penalties, and many of them were caught up in the sort of hysteria around that. Um, by the early 90s, we saw a significant shift. The uh, infamous 1994 federal crime bill, which uh, Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton have been challenged on during this year, uh, there was a very strong effort by the Black Caucus during that year to present an alternative crime bill, one that was focused much more so on creating opportunity, prevention initiatives, treatment initiatives, and the like. And they had to fight very hard to get any prevention money into uh, that ultimate uh, crime bill that was passed. So, um, so yes, uh, you know, leaders of color can make some of the same mistakes as uh, traditional white leadership can make, uh, but we also need to recognize many people have learned from those mistakes, have investigated more fully, and so uh, whether or not uh, they took a reasonable approach in 1986 does mean that they're committed to those policies today. Isn't it uh, another problem that we have has been created if, if, if these public policies that emphasize punishment more so than rehabilitation, in that don't they, don't they sort of create a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of recidivism, and, which is quite high, probably, I would imagine too high? Mm-hmm. Well, absolutely. And you know, what people too often forget is that, uh, you know, we hear people say we're going to lock the door and throw away the key when somebody goes off to prison. But, in fact, 95% of the people we send to prison are coming home someday. They may come home in a year. They may come home in 20 years. But they're coming back to live in our communities, and it should be in everyone's interest, whether you view yourself as a liberal or conservative, that they come back better prepared to make it in the community, which means we need to address the skill deficits that so many people have. It has to do with uh, remedial education in many cases. has to do with better health care, nutrition, substance abuse counseling, a whole range of situations that don't excuse the crime they committed, but certainly help us to understand how it may have come about. So it should be in everyone's interest to be investing in that. And I think we're beginning to see some change around that. Uh, The whole concept of prison reentry, you know, this notion that uh, from the day a person goes to prison, we should be thinking about how to prepare them to be getting out of prison, uh, finally is gaining some traction both within the corrections establishment but among policymakers as well. Uh, the challenge right now is that the, the 
amount of resources being put into those initiatives is still very modest given the scale of the problem we're talking about, but at least it's going in a different direction right now. Now, now Mark, what you're offering right now for decades has been viewed as, you know, soft soft on crime. And, there, and in addition, there's been very little analysis, or at least political analysis, on the impact that these current policies have on society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the soft on crime label is a strange one. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know anybody uh, who's pro-crime. You know, what we're talking about is how do we reduce the level of crime? How do we promote public safety? Uh, and, you know, we also hear, uh, I think, very divisive and unhelpful distinctions made between, you know, supposedly those who support victims and those who support offenders. And that uh, doesn't mean very much. Uh, you know, all of us have had our own experiences with victimization, or at least people close to us have. So I think we have some understanding of that and some personal needs around that. Uh, and many of us know people who've been through the justice system or know people who, uh, by good luck or uh, good families, were able to avoid that happening. So we need to look at everyone's needs on all sides of the equation. And, and the question is, uh, for a given person and given situation, uh, is putting that person in prison for five years going to help the person who is victimized or the next person who might be victimized, both in terms of the money we spend on incarceration, but but also the often harmful life consequences that come along with that. So I think uh, any reasonable person has to be concerned with advancing public safety. And what we're trying to debate is, you know, where do we draw the line? Uh, Rather than incarceration being the first option, seems to me that should be the last option. There's a whole set of interventions we can try short of that. And if nothing else is sufficient to guarantee public safety, that should be the moment when prison comes into the picture. Mark Meyer, Executive Director of the Sensing Project, I want to thank you for being on the Public Morality Today, sir. Thanks so much for having me, too. That was Mark Meyer of the Sensing Project. We will spend the remainder of the hour discussing the shootings that occurred last week in Baton Rouge, Minneapolis, and in Dallas. Last week began with the nation celebrating its independence. Most of us, myself included, assumed the top news story of the week would have been the FBI's decision not to recommend that the presumptive Democratic nominee, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, not be charged for the use of her email server. But as many of you already know, the next day, Clinton was removed as the top story by the reoccurring drama of another black man being shot by police. This time, it was Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge. Before we could get our heads around the Sterling shooting, the next day, additional video coverage, this time of Philando Castile being shot by law enforcement just outside Minneapolis filled social media. And the day after that, at the conclusion of a peaceful protest in Dallas, shots rang out killing six police officers. Perhaps it is time to ask the question posed by Martin Luther King, Where do we go from here? To tackle this question first is Reverend Michael Matthews. 
Reverend Matthews is Director of Clergy Organizing for PICO, a faith-based community organizing network with affiliates nationwide. Reverend Matthews, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Reverend Byron. It's really good to hear your voice and to uh, be on this show. Congratulations on it. Thank you. It's our pleasure. Um, I know it's a lot to put into a context, but through, through the lens of last week's episodes, where do you think America is right now in terms of violence? Well, I think we are in crisis. I think we are in a relational crisis um, about whether or not we can hold on to our collective humanity and see one another you know, as, as human beings, um, as, as fellow humans who can and should be in uh, deep and flourishing relationships with, with one another. Well, have we passed the point in your view where we can examine these events individually? And if, and if not, how healthy is it to the public discourse, assuming that that's the goal to move forward? So, you know, I think that um, it's really important that we be translocal in, um, in our analysis and our approach uh, to issues like this. Like, we have to begin, this is a moment when you see the pattern of, of, of encounters with law enforcement and black communities um, that have this sort of you know, pr- predictable kind of, kind of ending. Uh, we have to begin to step back and look at the pattern, look at the root causes, and begin to ask ourselves questions about the kind of systems and the kind of culture that we've created that would allow for, uh, for, for these kinds of outcomes uh, to happen. So we have to be able to see how things are connected to a broader narrative and, and a broader pattern. Uh, we may have to tend to the particularities of particular events or communities um, or, or cultures, but in, in solutions may be applied in different ways in local contexts. But they live as a part of a broader, a broader narrative and pattern that we need to understand if we actually want to be able to get beyond just the interpersonal uh, to understand how systems and cultures are really being are, are really being uh, exposed in what we're seeing. Now, now I, I realize right now that emotions are high, uh, but do we have enough information on any of uh, last week's um, tragedies to make a judicious conclusion about what occurred? Well, I think on the one hand, there is a way in, when we, in which we don't have all of the information um, that, will, that will come out. Um, but we, we are human. We, we do feel um, it is appropriate for us to, to express grief, um, to express, to express uh, fear and disappointment um, and rage. Um, we have an intuitive wisdom about, uh, about these things. And so, you know, we know that they fit into a pattern and a narrative and that we have to be able to acknowledge and express that uh, while also still pressing for even more information that gives us that deeper and clearer analysis um, and strategy for reform and strategy for healing and, and for flourishing in our communities. And so there's still more, there's still more work we have to do. There's still more information that will need to be, to be gathered. But I think that we as human beings know enough to know that this is a moment in which we must pause and, um, and grieve, that we must, that we must acknowledge uh, the, the depth of loss that we've, borne, that we've been bearing witness to this past week. Now, the, now uh, allow me just to put the contrarian hat on momentarily because I could hear someone listening saying, well, well part of the problem uh, that 
um, when one of these shootings happens, say in the case of Alden Sterling or Philando Castile, um, it just says police killed another black man, and that's as far as anyone's willing to go, and then it be, creates a climate of reactionary uh, uh, discourse. How do you respond to that? Well, I mean, I think I think if all we ever bear witness to um, are the are, are the um the demonstrations that 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 arise out of these um, out of these these tragic moments, and not recognize that they are part of a much broader uh, strategy um, of of organizing, of building opportunities for for deep encounters and relationships with decision makers that actually um, can change the way that we experience life in our communities. Then that would be the conclusion that you would that, that one would come to. Um, that 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 all these are just sort of expressions of of simple emotion, and they aren't rooted in any in any actual organizing work that's moving um, communities towards real solutions and trying to create space where uh, the common humanity of all the parties involved is being is being honored. Hmm. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Reverend Michael Matthews, who is Director of Clergy Organizing for PICO, which is a faith-based community organizing network with affiliates nationwide. Um, did I get that right? You got that right. All right, all right. We're in we're in 21 states now. Oh, great! Congratulations. Um, in, in the case of um, the Sterling shooting in um, Baton Rouge, um, it does appear at this point that he was armed. Um, while at the same time, uh, at least at the time of this interview, the facts are somewhat murky as it relates to the shooting with Castile in Minneapolis. But it sort of. Uh, alluding to your previous response, but we also know the court of public opinion on both sides has all the information they need to at least engage in that reactionary discourse. How do we change that was become an increasingly predictable pattern? How do we change that? Or can we? Well, you know, I, I think that we live, you know, in a media culture that uh, sort of thrives on on this kind of on this kind of tension, and so I think there are some there are some factors that are connected to how how we how we experience this this conversation that are kind of sort of built into the way um, our media our media culture uh, works. I I do think that uh, for those of us, uh, you know, for people of faith and, and moral courage who are uh, a part of organizing for for deep systemic change and for and and for deep renewal in in our communities, um, we have to be able to operate that is, uh, in, with the understanding and with the vision that it's possible uh, to actually transcend the the sort of predictable path that you're that you're that you're naming. What does it look like for us to focus on what is most important? Our relationships and our encounters with one, with one another. How we hold on to a sense of our of our common humanity when history and policy and practices and frames will strip us of it. You know, you 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 began your previous um, answer by talking about the media, and so I, I want to ask you um, when we're looking um, at a situation like um, Mr. Castile in, in in Minneapolis, and tensions are high, and, and it is as you mentioned that the impulse to uh, be reactionary, which is very human. Um, is it helpful for the Minneapolis Star in the aftermath of that shooting to report that he's been convicted of 31 misdemeanors? Uh, well, it depends on who is who we're asking about who's being helpful to. <laughs> so, 
So, I mean, the reality, I mean, this is such a common um, experience, not only in our media culture, but it's sort of like what comes out from uh, from law enforcement um, in the aftermath of shootings like this, um, a kind of practice of criminalizing and dehumanizing people of colors. Uh, people of color, this is a pretty standard, you know, practice of defaming and dehumanizing young black women and men who are victims of, of, of police violence. Um, it, the way that I look at it, it's a way of, of making the violence against you know dark bodies sanctioned or literally made made holy um, because now we can justify and rationalize a reason for uh, for why someone might be deserving of this kind of treatment or are not deserving of of the uh, of the benefit of the doubt. I mean, Mr. Castile was trying to, according to um, what his girlfriend recorded, um, you know, was trying to make it very clear to the officer that he had you know that he had a gun and, and um, was trying to actually save his life. Um, by by stating so, um, and yet now not only uh, not only that, but you know this re- report about these misdemeanors, which are you know these are like about driving, like driving violations, um, like petty misdemeanors. We're not talking about someone who was who was dangerous um, in any way. Um, going to the uh, Dallas shooting, uh, in the work that, in the work that you that you're involved in, um, putting in the context the the. What the six officers being killed? What does that do to to the work that, that you're involved in? Does that does that make the work harder, more challenging? Does it do people uh, uh, even more have to take up sides? How how does it does it impact? Does it change the narrative? Well, I mean, I think what it I think what 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 these um, incidents do in, in our work is they expose in many ways the um, areas where where we need to better understand the dominant narrative that drives so much of how we see ourselves as citizens um, um, in, in, in our communities and in, and in this and in this country. Uh, this shooting in Dallas, you know, in, in many ways um, helps us see how we have to deepen the prophetic narrative that emphasizes our shared humanity and our common destiny. Um, this shooting just sort of like raises the, the question about whether or not we actually can still see each other uh, fully and whether we can see ourselves as going in the same in the same direction. So for me, I see it as a challenge, but but it's a challenge to go deeper, a challenge to go deeper into a prophetic narrative, an alternative narrative about who we are as a people and who we can be um, as a people. Uh, Reverend Matthews, do do um, we, in your view, do we have the maturity? To hold all three cha- tragedies in equal, uh, in equal light, or do we, or can we only hold one, or or not hold the other two? I mean, do we have the maturity to even n- navigate that way? Well, um, so I think to the extent, if 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 if, if an equal light, what we mean is that can we see that these are tragic deaths of of of, of human of human beings, um, our our brothers. Um, and in some cases, our brothers and sisters in our in our communities, and and hold them as deep losses to our communities. Then I would say yes, we can walk and we can chew gum at the same time. We we can do that. Um, but I think it is I think it's one thing to say that the um, that the, the the tragic massacre of these police officers in Dallas is is um, is awful and unacceptable. It's another thing to say that it's the same as the state having the right um, to take people's lives, to take the lives of black bodies. It's not so that they're not, it's not the same thing. Mm-hmm. What's common is that they that there's a loss of life and that we should be able to hold 
um, hold hold that loss um, together. Now, a number of pundits, um, I, I would say, uh, in particular, um, former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani, mm-hmm. has placed the blame uh, for the shootings in Dallas on Black Lives Matter. Is that a fair analysis, in your view, sir? Absolutely not. Um, you know, and I, and I don't even have to turn to pundits to try to um, get into that conversation. You know, many of us in this work have had other friends and family in our lives who have laid at our feet um, the deaths of these of these officers. Um, and it's simply not a fair um, it's simply not a fair analysis. We can't hold whole groups or organizations responsible for the actions of someone who wasn't even acting as a representative of the group. We can't hold all Muslims responsible for the behavior of one who identifies as a Muslim and cre- and um, and commits a crime. We can't hold leaders of the civil rights movement responsible for the bombing deaths of four little girls in Birmingham. Um, we it's such logic would like paralyze you know any effort you know in the struggle for freedom. We have to we have a responsibility, of course, to tend to the integrity of our movement as an inclusive one, as a nonviolent one, as one that's rooted in our values, um, you know, and most important, our common humanity. Um, but we, I, I just, we just cannot accept blame for the actions of a disturbed individual. And um, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to, to say more specifically about the um, work at PICO to reduce violence. Um, in communities nationwide, um, and Operation Ceasefire. Would you say something about that, please? Sure, sure. So, you know, uh, PICO's campaign is called uh, Around Gun Violence. It's called uh, Live Free. Um, actually, it's, actually, Live Free is actually a much broader campaign mm-hmm. about ending gun violence, ending mass incarceration, and ending the criminalization of race. Um, and it began over five years ago as a local campaign in the Bay Area, where you once served as a pastor, uh, to reduce gun violence. Local black clergy were uh, tired of performing funerals for young people. They were tired of the violence and fear in their community. They wanted to, um, you know, find a way to do something about that. Um, after lots of research and conversations, they started some intervention programs based on the ceasefire model that you've mentioned that features, you know, community walks and call-ins and lots of data on individuals who are at risk of being either perpetrators or victims of gun violence and creates new opportunities for them, ways to build relationships um, um, between the community and the church and law enforcement and has been successful in in many of our communities across the country, in places like Baton Rouge, in places like Camden, New Jersey, in places like Richmond, California, we've been receiving a reduction of gun violence, you know, from anywhere to 30 to 60 percent. Um, it's increased the kind of um, legitimacy that police have in, in our communities. It's lowered stop and, and frisk practices, and it's, it's been a real sign of how when we re- invest in real relationship, when we invest in our common humanity, um, we, can, we can do more um, than, um, than just survive, but that we can actually uh, thrive together. That, that great work um, around ending gun violence led to us asking more questions about what else is contributing to the kind of violence and fear that we see in our communities. And so our work around education, our work around health, our work around understanding how mass incarceration works, our work around trying to end the criminalization of race, even how we see each other uh, through the lens of race, is all rooted in this vision of, of us being able uh, to hold on to our humanity, uh, hold, I'm sorry, hold on to our humanity um, and allow ourselves to see each other as humans can, who can and should be in relationship with each other. You know, all organizing is about understanding that the power that we want, that we need to make life right is rooted in our relationship. 
relationships, that people change in the context of deep relationships and profound encounters. And so um, our work in, um, in ending gun violence, our work in ending mass incarceration, and our work in ending the criminalization of race is all rooted in this common value about, about uh, deep relationships um, and shared humanity. Reverend Michael Matthews, I want to thank you uh, for joining us today on the Public Morality, sir. I'm so deeply honored uh, to be to, to be able to talk with you today, Pastor Byron. I look forward I look forward to uh, hearing the the, uh, the future of your of your program and more conversations with well, I'm thank you, and powerful I'm sh- thinkers. I'm thank you. I'm sure we'll be having you back again at some point. But All thank right. you. Blessings on your brother. Given that so much has been said in relation to the recent shootings and the Black Lives Matter movement, I thought I would ask my good friend Terrence Hawkins to return and share his perspective. Reverend Terrence Hawkins, welcome back to The Public Morality. So good to be back. Well, I wanted to have you back. I mean, you, you, I think you broke the record for how fast we bring somebody back if we've had them on. <laughs> but, but I wanted to bring you back given uh, the events of last week and first just get your initial thoughts, if you can put that in some type of perspective for us. Yeah, it's been um, one of those weeks that I think will go down in this era of history as extremely tumultuous, um, tragic, and uh, yeah, tons of tension um, on so many levels. Uh, we obviously uh, mourn uh, the loss of life of um, the five police officers in Dallas. Uh, we grieve with their families, and uh, we pray for police officers across the nation for their safety. Uh, but we also hold in tension the fact that we are still um, plagued by a history of police brutality on the bodies of black and brown people. And so we feel like, um, as Ella Baker said, we who believe in freedom still can not rest as we also affirm and acknowledge the humanity and worth of those lives that were lost. Um, we we want to try to do both at the same time. You know, given your involvement in Black Lives Matter, I, I wanted to get your thoughts about comments made by former uh, New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani over the weekend claiming that Black Lives Matter was quote-unquote inherently racist and anti-American. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, the mayor's comments are not surprising at all. Um, listen, I'm, I'm under no delusion that um, uh, black folks can be guilty of bias, um, bigotry, and prejudice. Uh, but to say that Black Lives Matter, um, a movement which exists um, as the latest iteration of a long legacy of resistance against racism, um, is itself racist, um, in my opinion, is absurd. Um, I would like to pose the question to him and others, what exactly is racism? Um, And I think we all can um, come to the to the agreement that racism is the execution of the lie of race. Race is this idea um, that there's some sort of human hierarchy and white folks sit at the top of that and black folks sit at the bottom of that and uh, there's criminality and inferiority assigned to blackness and there's superiority and privilege assigned to whiteness. And so um, all of that is executed within legislation, is executed within our criminal justice system, is executed in every single nook and cranny of our society society and um, police brutality is one um, one of many um, 
places where we see um, racism at work in our country. And so to call a movement that is resisting racism, which by definition um, is power and prejudice, um, uh, wedded together um, systemically um, is just ridiculous in my view. And it's not anti-American um, to try to hold um our country to what it says on paper, um, to say that our lives matter, um, black lives matter, uh, when the very document that we uh, celebrated, the Declaration of Independence, um, uh, while saying all lives matter, it called um, uh, black folks who are resisting the institution of slavery, uh, domestic insurrectionists, and uh, it, it called um, our Indian brothers and sisters uh, merciless savages. And so we want to zoom in on that beautiful portion of the document. Uh, we want to zoom in on those things about America that I think are noble and true, uh, and we want to, um, yeah, begin to live into that reality. So I reject uh, his claims and, and, and others who would attempt to um, say that the Black Lives Matter movement is inherently racist or anti-American. Um, are you aware, uh, I, I would, I'm about the national level, of any uh, efforts or what did Black Lives Matter do merely following the uh, uh, the killings in Dallas where five police officers were killed because I, I'm sure there was a lot of pressure on them, reactionary uh, criticism coming back at them. So did they do anything specifically that you're aware of? Well, um, they released a statement. The Black Lives Matter actual organization right. uh, released a statement um, condemning the violence, um, expressing their grief and sorrow, and um, trying to make it clear that uh, they are an organization that's committed to ending violence. So they absolutely in no way, shape, or form promote or condone violence. And then um, other leaders associated with the broader movement that may not necessarily be connected to the organization, um, like DeRay McKinson and others, um, all um, through social media and um, public interviews, express their grief, their sorrow, uh, their lament over this happening. Um, but I think we all have tried to hold uh, the two realities in tension, that this was a tragedy, um, but that there is an ongoing tragedy of police brutality uh, that we want to see right, we, we want to see made right, we want to see um, justice um, come to our criminal justice system. We want it um, to be, we want everyone to receive equal treatment under the law. We want to um, live in a world where a traffic, a routine traffic stop doesn't end um, in the death of a precious life. Now, now taken together, I mean, the, the totality of the events, do you see um, what occurred last week as reflective of how little they were listening to the other side? I think so. Um, so there were those that immediately um, placed the blame on um, Black Lives Matter movement and its uh, quote-unquote rhetoric as the cause of um, the Dallas shootings. And uh, that's deeply frustrating um, when from our standpoint, uh, we are um, pushing for a reform. We're not pushing for uh, police officers to die. And I think there's a, a misunderstanding in terms of our critique of a system, um, which doesn't mean that every single individual that works in that system is corrupt or racist or out to kill. Um, there are those uh, within it that um, have plainly revealed themselves to be as such, but uh, we don't deny um, the existence of well-meaning, noble people who put on the badge every day. But unfortunately, the presence of good people inside of corrupt systems doesn't override the ways in which those systems um, hurt citizens. And so I think that's one level of misunderstanding and, and, and lack of listening. Um, I think 
there could be um, on all sides um, a push for um, empathy, a push to try to get in the shoes of the other, a push to try to understand where people from all sides of the aisle are coming from, um, what informs their perspectives. Um, yeah, I, I do think that um, last week revealed once again that we um, are not listening to each other, and we have not listened to each other for quite some time. I believe that just the last three or four years has been kind of apocalyptic, if you will. It's been an un masking of uh, what has always been there kind of uh, under the radar. Uh, those things are no longer hidden. And so now we're um, we're having to face the ugliness that's always been there. And I think it's been spiked in some ways by a lot of the recent events. Um, well, let me uh, end by posing a question to you, which was uh, ironically the title of Martin Luther King's last book, um, since so many have made the connection uh, that this is reminiscent of 68 in so many ways. Where do we go from here, Reverend Hawkins? Uh, well, I do think to your uh, earlier question that um, we all need to take a posture of listening, um, and I, I think that the um, the weight of that um, goes uh, should be more on our, our brothers and sisters who are white, on those who occupy positions of leadership within police forces, within our government. Um, I think we need to be learning um, our history. There is such a uh, historical illiteracy that plagues our public consciousness um, that really handicaps us from, from seeing these moments as clear as possible, as clear as uh, humanly possible. And we need to lament um, you know, we have a culture that is uh, set up to always give us pleasure, always to make us happy. Uh, we're we're uh, shaped by hedonism. But um, I think lament is a powerful thing. If we can begin to lament the world as it is, um, I think from that place we could be empowered to dream and work for um, the world that could be. Um, and as we lament, I, I, we need to be lifting up our voices. Folks need to be speaking out. They need to be reaching out to their public officials. Uh, we need to stay in the streets. I don't think it's time to come out of the streets. But in addition to our efforts of protest, we, we need to be engaging um, folks in policy and pol uh, policing reform. Um, there's so many things that need to happen. We need better training inside of our um, police departments. I was looking at some information um, that showed that um, – I think it was about 58 days, uh, 58 hours sent, spent on um, firearms, sh how to shoot to kill, um, and only about eight hours on average in a police force um, spent on de-escalation. And I think that points to part of the problem, and so we, we need to have these discussions and these reforms inside of police departments. Reverend Terrence Hawkins, you have a lot of work ahead of you, but thank you for returning to the public rally today, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. And for those who would like to hear the archive broadcast, you can find those at our website, which is publicmorality.com. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.